This is episode 12 with Jack Schaefer, author of the book, The Like Switch, an ex-FBI agent's guide to influencing, attracting, and winning people over. If we put a barrier between the person we're talking with, that indicates that there's no rapport there. So what you want to do is watch where people place their coffee cups. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Okay, so this one is a little bit different. What is an ex-FBI agent doing on a motherhood podcast? You wouldn't normally link those two together. So let me explain why this is important. He wrote a book which I read it's about almost two years ago called The Like Switch. Basically, how to be or appear more likable so you can make friends more easily, so you can interact with people without having that awkward feeling. Should I go talk to them or should I not? So technically, making friends should be easy, but more and more people feel isolated and even more so with social media which is supposed to keep us connected and also the fear of embarrassment giving off a bad impression and getting your feelings hurt uh, being taken advantage of struggling with friendships well this episode is for you it will improve your interactions with people how to connect more with mothers how to get people to like you before you even speak a word so this is really big because we focus a lot on nonverbal cues and communication that often goes uh, undetected so if you want to know if you're sending the right friend signals or faux signals because we're social beings we like to interact with each other some people have this way of just talking to everyone. Other people, not so much. I'm one of those people. You can apply if you're single looking for a new romantic relationship. If you're in one, how can you keep that spark and intensity? Uh, if you've been with your partner for years, that also applies because as you're in relationship with your partner and even when you have kids or they've left the home, how can you keep that interest regardless how old or young you are? That being said, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. People will never forget how you made them feel. 
So this is by Maya Angelou. Okay, so a little bit about Jack Schaefer. Who is he? So he wrote a couple books related to law enforcement's um, psychological analysis and co-authored books about advanced interviewing techniques, has a PhD in psychology, has 20 years experience working as an FBI agent, working as a behavioral analysis getting people to confess to their crimes and getting people to trust him and to recruit spies and turn enemies into friends and basically uh, <laughs> getting people to like him. Uh, he has published numerous articles related to communication online and he currently teaches law enforcement and justice administration at the Department of Western Illinois University. He's a father of three. So without further ado, Let's listen in to our conversation. Welcome, Jack Schaefer, and thank you for being on Citrus Love today. Before we start diving in, I just want to start by saying I really wanted you on the podcast today because of the book you wrote a few years ago, The Like Switch, an ex-FBI agent's guide to influencing attracting and winning winning people over. I actually read your book two years ago. At that time, I had given birth to my second child. But with my first, which was four years ago, I struggled a bit because I was one of the first ones to have kids in my circle. I wanted to meet more mothers and parents like myself who were going through the same journey. And it made me a bit anxious because it felt a little bit like dating, putting yourself out there and trying to, I guess, attract or appear likable to other people. And so when I found your book, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's see what, what it's all about. And what you talked about in the book, which we'll talk about today, it just opened my eyes. And I literally, I was in the car listening to it and I said, now I understand. So it made me more relaxed because I felt more confident in how I should prepare myself and what I should do when I meet people that I think, oh, they'd, they'd be nice friends, but not be too intrusive or too direct in a way that makes them scared or think I'm weird. I know this book can apply to every human being because it's about human connections and developing relationships and friendships and love. So I think it would be good for parents and mothers to have a better understanding about some of these skills that we can develop. Before I talk specifically about the book, I'm curious to know, as a child, were there any signs that demonstrated your ability to observe and analyze people's behaviors? Or were those skills you developed on the job? Well, I remember in my early childhood, I was eight or 10 years old. My parents used to take me to the mall and I, I'd just sit by the fountain in the center of the mall and I would just look at people and be fascinated by them. So that's my earliest recollection of being interested in what people do and how they behave. And I would often sit and think, what is that? What's the story behind that person that's walking by? How are they walking by? What are their facial expressions? Are they having a good day? those types of things. So that's my earliest recollection of my interest in uh, human behavior. And basically, you took a career path later on that led you into law enforcement. In the book, you talked about your kids. Also, you have three kids. They're adults now. Well, for you, the teenagers years, it's pretty much 
the the good time to detect if they're telling the truth or different signs of getting even your kids to like you sometimes. I'm curious to know because you're you used to be in the FBI interrogating and trying to figure out who committed crimes. How was it with your own kids? Because I'm sure you could tell right away how they were feeling based on the signs they were sending or if they were saying the truth when you asked them questions. How was it with your own kids? Well, af after a while, uh, my son, he dinged the car up, got a scratch on the car or something. He came home and he says, uh, Dad, I scratched the car. I'll get three estimates tomorrow. You pick the one you want. I'll get it repaired. And by the way, I grounded myself. Here's the keys. I'm grounded for two weeks. <laughs> and the, the following morning, I said, what was that all about? He says, well, it's a lot easier just to come in and tell you the truth and suffer the consequences than to go through an interrogation. <laughs> so, and how old was he? Around 17? He was, yes, 16? he was 17. I think he was closer to 17. It was after he started driving. <laughs> so was it because you were relentless, like when you asked them the questions and you kept on asking until they finally said the truth about well, situations? Well, I would subtly interrogate them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're not as hardened as criminals, so it's a little yeah. bit easier. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, I can imagine that. So let's dive in. I want to focus first on one of the things you mentioned in the book as the friendship formula. So you refer to it as a mathematical formula. And you say that it's critical to the development of any relationship, that if you want to strengthen your a relationship, the friendship formula will help you achieve the outcome. So can you explain more what is the friendship formula? Well, basically, there's four elements to all personal relationships. The first element is proximity. We have to be proximal to people in order to have a relationship with them. And proximity also includes uh, virtual proximity over the computer. Because if neither person knows the other one exists, then there's zero possibility of a relationship. One of the psychological things about proximity is if you are just in, share the same space with people, uh, they have a tendency to like you, even though they've never met you and you perhaps never spoke before. But proximity has a way of just igniting mutual attraction. The second thing we need in a relationship is frequency. Now that we have to be with somebody, but we have to be with somebody frequently so that we can get to know them. And frequency is it also increases mutual attraction. The third element of the relationship would be duration. And that is time spent with the person. So we have to spend a lot of time with that person to develop that relationship. And there's an interesting inverse relationship between frequency and duration. Because if we see somebody for the, a little bit of time every day, then the duration of that meeting can be shorter. But for example, if you haven't seen somebody for a long time and you're, you're in a restaurant and next thing you know, it's been five hours and you're talking in a restaurant, that's because you haven't seen the frequency is low. So your duration has to be high. And the other thing about duration is that people who have the most influence on you spend the most time with you. So the more duration I, I have in time with you, the more I'm able to influence you. 
and vice versa, the more the other person is likely to influence you. Mm-hmm. The last one, I think the most important uh, element is intensity. And intensity is kind of the glue that holds that relationship together. And there's, it's difficult to measure intensity, but we can do it using nonverbals. For example, the most powerful intensifier in a relationship is mutual gaze. We look at people we like, and we don't look at people we don't like. And smiling is another one. We smile at people we like, and we don't smile at people we don't like. An interesting thing about smiling is that when we smile, we release endorphins. Endorphins make us feel good about ourselves. Other person feel good about themselves. So head nodding, there's mirroring. Uh, mirroring gestures is is one thing that we can use to outwardly tell whether there's a relationship between two people is that if we're standing around in a group, you'll notice that everybody, if one person has their arms crossed, you'll notice that everybody in that group will have their arms crossed if there is uh, good rapport with that group. And you can test this rapport. It's kind of interesting because say you have everybody has their arms folded across their chest. What you can do is unfold your arms and take a new position. And within five or 10 seconds, everybody in that group will will then mirror that gesture, that there's a rapport built there. Okay. If they mirror back, that's a good sign. Yes. I want to go back to proximity because I had a question. Proximity, you don't have to be like physically close to the person. You just need to be in an area where they see you. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. If we, just, if we just share office space together, you know, there's a lot of people in an office. It could be a big office. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people we don't know. But if we see them every day, we have a tendency to like them. Mm. One, an example I like to use is is if, if people run every day and they see that person every single day, although they don't talk to them, they see them on the same route at the same time every day. There's proximity. We have a tendency to like those people that we see on the running track that we take every day. We don't talk to them. We don't know them, but we have a tendency to like them just Mm. because of the proximity and the frequency. Mm -hmm. So let's say like for me, a lot of parents, they go to a coffee shop and for play dates or when if you want to meet other, let's say mothers, you should go to those areas and you don't necessarily need to talk with them. Just go often. So it increases the frequency and they see you more often. So you become more likable. Right. Right. And, and and the example we can use is if you want to meet friends and you can go to a park where a lot of mothers, their kids to play. And if you just be there for a while, you, you can't rush this. You just exist in the same area. You see the same people the same time every day. The other moms and dads that are bringing their kids there. And then what you want to do is introduce some friend signals. In other words, after you spend you know, a number of days or perhaps weeks just sharing space with people, you want to then make eye contact because eye contact is increases mutual gaze. And there's three friend signals that we can send people non-verbally that let them know that we're open to relationships. And the three friend signals are eyebrow flashes, head tilt, and a smile. Mm-hmm. But the, an eyebrow flash is, is 164th of, of a second where we raise our eyebrows very quickly and lower them. So we just up, down very quickly. 
that's a long distance signal that tells other people that we're open to that relationship and we're not a threat. Mm. And a lot of people don't realize that they eyebrow flash every single day. Amazing because once I share that with people, they come back and they say, I, I caught myself eyebrow flashing many, many times every day and I see eyebrow flashes every day. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things that we don't realize that we do and it's almost a semi-conscious signal we send out when we're not a threat. So what you want to do is eyebrow flash somebody and say good morning or you want to tilt your head because when you tilt your head, you expose your carotid artery. So that lets that person know that you, you don't see them as a threat because you're exposing a vulnerable part of your uh, anatomy that if the carotid artery was cut, we only have a few minutes to live. So when we trust people, we have a tendency to tilt our heads. And if anybody has a dog, mm -hmm. when we walk in the house after a long day at work, the dog sits there and what? Tilts his head. Or else the dog will flip over and, and want a tummy rub. But what yeah. the dog is saying is I'm exposing a very vulnerable part of my body because I trust you. And the last of the friend signals is the smile. And when we smile at somebody, it's very difficult for them not to return that smile. And when we do smile, we release endorphins. And when we release endorphins, that makes us feel good about ourselves. And when the other person smiles, it makes them feel good about themselves. And that kind of ties in with the golden rule of friendship, which says if you want people to like you, you make them feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. So the smile falls right in line with that because when we look at somebody and smile and they smile back, they get a shot of uh, endorphins and, and uh, you get a shot of endorphins. So you feel good about yourself. They feel good about themselves. And so that's this, the mutual, nonverbal mutual attraction there mm -hmm. that predisposes people to like one another. And we do all that before we even exchange words with the person. You know, a good example of this, what I, I like to use, if we're at work and we pass somebody the first time during the day, we always say, hey, how you doing? And the other person says, hey, how you doing? The second time we see that person, we don't have to talk to them. What we typically do, we'll raise our eyebrows very quickly and eyebrow flash up and down to let the other person know that we're, we're not a threat. And also, guys sometimes will do the chin jut. They will jut their chin out. Nonverbal signals that we're sending one another to say that we're open to a relationship, we're not a threat to one another. Mm -hmm. That's true because <laughs> like I'm thinking about myself and I do those things, but you don't realize it until you're saying it now. You don't, it comes naturally, I guess, when we feel at ease with some people, it just, it just happens. Or I know when you cross someone on the street and they smile, it feels natural to smile back. Here's, here's where the problem comes in. Say you're a, a, a new mom, a new parent, and you want to go meet somebody. And let's use the park example. You go to the park. Mm -hmm. And now you're, you, you mentioned earlier you felt a little anxious. You, you were a little unsure mm -hmm. of how to handle the situation. But what that causes then is a light form of the fight-flight response because you're afraid. So the fight-flight response kicks in. Once the fight-flight response kicks in, we no longer are very comfortable sending friend signals out because if we're in a, a fight or flight situation, the last thing we want to tell people is we're friendly. So mm. we have a tendency to take on what I call the urban scowl. In other words, we do all the opposite of the friend signals, which are faux signals. And people see the faux signals and they, they think non-verbally, they think, hmm, 
that person isn't very friendly. So here's the advantage of knowing what friend signals are and the, you know, the friendship formula is that you can consciously now walk into a situation like that and say to yourself, yes, I'm a little nervous. So what do I have to intentionally do Mm. to let people know that I'm friendly, yet I'm a bit nervous? And that would be make sure your eyebrow flash. So you want to practice eyebrow flashing and look at people eyebrow flashing, sense when you eyebrow flash, so you can kind of imitate the eyebrow flash intentionally to overcome your anxiety and make sure you head tilt and smile. If you can't smile naturally because you're nervous, what you can do is you can kind of fake a smile, and that is just raise your chin up a little bit when you smile and make sure your crow's feet, your eyes squish it at the end of your uh, each of your eyes, and that tells the other person that it's a genuine smile. Even though you're anxious, you can still let people know that you're friendly. Yeah. So I grew up in the city of Chicago on the south side, and it was kind of a dangerous neighborhood. And so I adapted what city people call the urban scowl. So you're walking down the street, and all you're doing is scowling at people so the predators won't, you know, seek you out as prey. But, you know, I met my wife, and she was out in the suburbs. So I went out to the suburbs, and all her friends said that, boy, he sure is mean looking, and I don't want to talk to him. And <laughs> Well, that's because I, I kept my urban scowl in an in a environment where it wasn't necessary or wasn't usual. Mm-hmm. So we have to be conscious of how we, you know, send signals to people. Likewise, if you have panhandlers and people begging on the street and you don't want to talk to them, don't look at them. You, you know, don't eyebrow flash them. And those people will say, hmm, not likely to get any money from that person and leave you alone because they're only going to want to target people that are vulnerable. There's a lot of ways you can use the different signals. I have a question for the friendship formula. So for the proximity, frequency, duration, intensity, do they have to be in a specific order for it to work? Can only two be applied to work, I guess? Well, they all have to work in concert, but you can short on one. For example, when uh, uh, military people go overseas, You know, I was asked to train them to show them how they can maintain their relationships. But in that situation, there's no proximity, perhaps up to a year. So what do you have to do? You have to increase frequency of your phone calls, increase the duration and increase the intensity of those calls. Mm -hmm. You can overcome by compensating with the other ones if you lack one particular element. How can you increase the intensity through, let's say, FaceTime or phone call with someone that's, let's say, long distance relationship or you're talking to a family member that's working or traveling? Well, over a call, what you can do is it's the self-disclosures that you make. So mm-hmm. you, could, you could talk about things that you've done all throughout your day. You could talk about your emotions, your feelings, and that has a sense of increasing intensity of that relationship. Hmm. Okay. Is there a specific time frame for the formula to, to work? Well, it, it, it depends. It could take a long time depending on the resistance of the other person okay. to a suspect. In one case I mentioned in the book, it took uh, weeks mm-hmm. just sitting with that person without saying anything. And once their fear of me left, then there's something called curiosity. And so the person became curious as to why I kept coming every day. And that brings us to another thing that we can use as kind of a a link to increase relationships. And that is 
when we are, say we're in this park situation and we want to make friends with parents with, with similar toddlers, same age toddlers, what we can do is wear a curiosity hook. In the case of men, you can wear a sports team, you know, logo on your shirt, your hat, and people mm-hmm. come up and say, oh, you, you're a Sox fan or a Cubs fan. And that instantaneously starts conversation. Women can use lots of things, anything that, that represents that interest or hobby. And then people who have like interests will automatically come up and talk to you because of the principle of common ground or common interest. Mm-hmm. For parents, I find that's easy for mothers because if you have a child around the same age as the other mother, it's like instant connection. We we can start talking, say, oh, how old is your son or daughter, blah, blah, blah. And it just starts the conversations. Yeah, that's uh, common ground. There's three types of common ground. The first one is contemporaneous, which means we share things in common, like You have a child and I have a child and they're similar age. So we have instantaneous common ground. Mm -hmm. The second one is temporal over time. You have a young child. I had one, you know, 32 years ago. So we can share the same experiences over time. And the other one is vicarious. If I don't have a child, I know somebody that does have a child. So I could say, oh, my sister has a child or my nephew or my nieces. So then I can share common ground with somebody with a child vicariously through somebody else. And common ground is a powerful way to increase relationships and rapport. Mm -hmm. The other powerful tool that we can use for building good rapport is called the the empathetic statement or the empathic statement. And that is nothing more than taking what that person, what they say, how they feel, or their physical or emotional status and using parallel language and mirroring it back to them. And a good example of this is if you go up to a, a, a person, you want to say, so you must be real busy with those three kids. And automatically the other person can say, yeah, you're darn right, I'm really busy. And then you could, you know, move your comment. Yeah, well, I have three kids. and mm-hmm. you know, But you, you, what you want to do is you want to construct your empathic statement beginning with so you initially because you want to keep it off you and focus on the other person. Nobody is particularly interested in your ordeals. <laughs> they're interested in their own problems. So yes. you say, so you, and the last thing you want to do is say, I know how you feel because the first thing you're going to think is, no, you don't. You don't know how I feel. You're not me. Mm, especially to someone you've just met. Yeah. Right. And it's power, powerful, powerful uh, rapport building tool. You have to start with so you? You don't have to, but I, uh, what I try to do is get people in the habit of going so you. You can drop the so you, you know, once you get used to constructing empathic statements and say, wow, it must be must keep you pretty busy with those three toddlers. Mm-hmm. Based on an observation you're making. Yes. Or okay. you look pretty you look pretty tired. You must have been up late last night with those kids. Mm. Then it's either, yes, I was, or no, I wasn't, but I was real busy, or, you know, then you start the conversation. And once that person says something, if you're shy, what Mm -hmm. the value of an empathic statement is, once that person responds to your initial empathic statement, you just create another empathic statement based on the person's response. Okay. And the person isn't going to think that's unusual because most of us think the world revolves around us. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it's about time somebody recognized that. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen if you use uh, a lot of empathic statements, 
they're going to leave that encounter thinking, wow, that person's a good listener. That person's a nice person. I like that person because, well, of course, because they spent a lot of time talking to you about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it makes me think too about once you start talking, you let the person talk and you listen more. And often they'll think, wow, I like that person because it feels good when someone is interested in what you're saying. Let's talk about other nonverbal signs we can look for. Let's say I'm meeting a mother first time. I always use coffee, because <laughs> the classic uh, parenting uh, drink. So meeting up for coffee, the kids are playing and we're talking. What are the signs I should look for to see if we're connecting, if is she likes me? One thing I read in your book, which I thought was really interesting, is the lips, looking at if they bite their lips, purse their lips, lip compression, touching their lips. I didn't know there was all these different ways to read lips. Can you talk about that? Yeah, let's. Uh, I want to back up to the coffee, uh, meet people over coffee. Well, one of the principles is that 70% of all information is exchanged over food or drink. We experience oh. that throughout our lives. So when we share food or drink with other people, we're predisposed to talk with them. Mm-hmm. So that's why in you know suspect interviews, I always offer a cup of coffee or I always offer soda or something to eat or drink because that predisposes the person to talk. So what you want to encourage is coffee. Let's go out and have coffee because that will help the conversation. The other thing that's interesting about coffee is there's something, if we put a barrier between the person we're talking with, that indicates that there's no rapport there. So what you want to do is watch where people place their coffee cups. If they place their coffee cup directly between you and them, then rapport has not been built because that's a barrier. So once you build sufficient rapport and the person likes you, they're going to put their coffee off to one side or the other side and leave nothing between you and the person you're talking with. Let's say that there's nothing on the table except the, the two coffee mugs. If their coffee mug is in front of them, that's a barrier? Yeah, that's a, that's a sign that there's a possibility rapport has not yet been developed. Because mm-hmm. think about the time when you go into a restaurant with your loved one or just a friend. What's mm-hmm. the first thing you do is you clear the deck. You push all the stuff that's in the middle over to the side. And we do that because we don't want any barriers between us and the person we're talking to. So what we do with the coffee cup is if, if rapport hasn't been established, then the coffee cup typically is between the two people. But then once rapport has been developed, many times you'll see that coffee cup go to either side or slide over, moving the barrier. So that's just one way you can kind of look to see if there's, you know, the relationships is being developed. Mm-hmm. Then getting back to the lips now, the lips are, they tell us a lot. And one of the things that the lips do is if you're talking to somebody and you see them kind of biting their lips just a little bit, like tugging at the upper lower lip, Mm -hmm. that means means they want to say something, but they're afraid to say it. And Hmm. I'm a professor at Western Illinois University, and I often use this in my classroom. When I see a student biting or tugging their lip, I say, oh, you have something to say, you know, feel (laughs) free. 
They go, well, how did you know? Well, they were telling me non-verbally. Mm-hmm. The other thing is lip compression. That is when we take our lips and we press them together. That means that we want to say something, but we really don't want to say it. We have something to say, but we don't want to say it. We don't want to say it so badly that we will actually lock our lips or compress them so we don't accidentally come out and say something. Hmm. And I think, the you know, I see that in, in, in class also. I think the most powerful one is the lip purse. That is the slight outward movement of your lips when they're pulled together. And mm-hmm. it's very slight. You see it quite a bit. What that means is that person has already formed a negative opinion to what you just said. So if you're talking to somebody and they purse their lips, that topic you that caused them to purse their lips, they've already formed a, a negative sentence or negative opinion of what you just said. I also use that in the classroom. I'll see students, uh, I'll say something and they'll purse their lips and I say, so you don't agree with what I just said, <laughs> which, is, which is an empathic statement. So you don't agree with what I just said. And they go like, yeah, how did you know? And I say, well, what don't you agree with? Mm. So you can start reading people. And this this is what's important about face-to-face communication versus Internet. On the Internet, we don't get those kinds of signals. So we unconsciously pick up a lip purse, and our brain is subconsciously going like, that's enough of that topic. So for friendship, you probably wouldn't mention it. If it's a brand new relationship, I would say, okay, that's a sensitive topic. I better not go there unless Mm. I can, you know, build more rapport with that person. Rapport is very important, not only to make a psychological connection between two people, but the more rapport we have with somebody, the more personal questions we can ask and the questions won't be offensive. So it's kind of a bank account. So if I have a lot of rapport with you, I can ask you more personal questions and you won't be offended. Mm-hmm. But if I keep asking personal questions without replenishing that rapport account, then I'm going to go non-sufficient funds. I won't have enough rapport to ask those delicate questions. Which brings us to another kind of correlate of this is that self-disclosure also increases rapport with people. So we don't want to disclose something too intimate or something too mild. It's just kind of in the mid-range of self-disclosure. When we self-disclose to people, we're, we're actually making ourselves vulnerable. And mm-hmm. that vulnerability is uh, the foundation of rapport or relationships. And when we be, you know, self-disclose, then we predispose other people to self-disclose back. Yes. And that, and that increases the, the depth of that relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that even in like my own friendships. And sometimes, I mean, you want to go a little deeper in your conversations. I've noticed that if I become more vulnerable myself and talk about a specific topic, then oftentimes the other person will talk about the same topic. Yeah, but one of the things you have to be careful of is if you self-disclose too much Mm -hmm. information like when we see somebody we like, we have a tendency to data dump and give them all the information and pile it on. A, a better approach would be to use the, what I call the Hansel and Gretel. That is just self-disclose one thing one day and then wait a while, self-disclose something mm. else. Because self-disclosure keeps the relationship more fresh. So what you want to do is don't self-disclose everything yeah. like you yeah. want to. Well, just self-disclose one thing at a time over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And that relationship keep, you know, more fresh. 
And what about eye contact for friendships? Because I know for romantic relationship, eye contact, that's, that's a big one. But for friendship, do you just make a quick eye contact? Can you talk more about that for friendships? Well, well what, what you can do, kind of a subtle way to increase mutual eye contact without staring and that is what I call it, like the cheesy eye pull. It's like, you know, pulling the cheese off the pizza, you stretch it. So what you want to do is you make your initial eye contact. And then what you want to do is you want to maintain the eye contact while you're turning your head. And what's going on is you're, you're kind of stretching that look. So the other person's brain is saying that the person is not staring because their head is turning, but yet you're still maintaining eye contact. Mm. And that increases intensity. But you have to be careful. You don't want to send the wrong message, if mm-hmm. depending mm-hmm. on your circumstances. Yeah. Ed, <laughs> you also mentioned the book, um, The Elevator Eyes. And I want to mention this because I know some people do this. And let's just say what it really means. So what are the elevator eyes? Well, the elevator eyes is, is when you look at the person. Typically, guys will, will look at women from their head and they'll slowly move their head down to the woman's toes and then they'll rise back up to the top of her head again. Mm-hmm. And that's a very intimate looking gesture that many, unless you're very good friends with that person, almost intimate friends, that is not going to be accepted because you don't have the right to look at that person in that way. You're invading their space. And you know, you know, a good example of this, I'm sure most of us experience this. If If you're at a stoplight and a police car pulls up right next to you, you'll look over at that policeman sitting there. And then as soon as he looks at you, your eyes will snap back to the front. (laughs) But the cop doesn't have to snap his eyes back. In other words, the cop will just keep looking at you. Why? Because by his authority of being a police officer, he's got the right to look into your car, but you don't have the right to look into his car. So we just have to look at, you know, we can earn the right to the elevator look. And in fact, if you're intimate with somebody and you give them the elevator look, they go like, wow, he digs me or she digs me or whatever. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the inward lean. This is a good way. I I think it's simple and it's clear to see if someone indicates a positive relationship um, with the other person. Yeah, the inward lean is we lean towards people we like and we distance ourselves from people we don't like. So when we first meet people and we like them, we have a tendency to lean in towards them. And if we don't like that person, we're going to distance ourselves from that person. So, you know, typically you can look at restaurants when you go dinner with someone you love. What typically happens is you lean towards one another in your seats. And if people have interest in something, like in the classroom, when I teach, I know when the students are interested because they're leaning forward towards me. The Mm -hmm. ones that don't have interest are leaning backwards. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is look for that symmetry in the postures that you share with the other person. In other words, if you're having coffee with somebody and you're talking and it's a newer relationship and both of you are leaned in towards one another, that's a good sign that the relationship is developing properly. Mm -hmm. So this is something we do unconsciously because I know now what it means. If I've met someone a few times and I purposely lean in a little bit just to send that signal, that works, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the power of, of knowing these things. You know, most people do these things every day, all day, many times. They just don't know they're doing them. 
So the purpose of the book was to make people aware of what they do so then they can intentionally do it mm-hmm. to, you know, help them make better relationships and stronger relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that you talked about in the book that I had never noticed is the feet positioning, especially when, I mean, you go to an event or a party or uh, you're part of a group. So there's many people talking together. Sometimes there's two, three people and you're like, oh, should I, I want to go and talk with them, but I don't know if they're open to having someone else come or so talk about the feet positioning and how that can maybe give us a clue. Yeah, what happens was when I was in the FBI, I used to go to some lot of formal functions where you had to mingle with people. And most of the time, people you don't know. And what I would do is I would look at people's feet. If two people are standing toe to toe, then that's a closed relationship. They don't want anybody else in the circle at that moment. But then if they're turned slightly askance and there's an open spot there, then you can walk up and kind of blend into you know that that conversation because they're open to it so the the rule of thumb i like to use is if there's a place to put your feet it's okay to meet mm-hmm. so if they leave a gap that means they're open to someone else coming into the conversation or the group right so if you can if you can put your feet there then they're open to the conversation it's okay to meet them mm-hmm It's very helpful because you don't want to barge in on a conversation that's closed because they're going to reject you by sending you all kinds of faux signals. Mm-hmm. They won't be smiling or eyebrow flashing or head tilting if you want to barge into that circle. <laughs> Another thing is, and this I really love, is the principle of reciprocity, but you mentioned a specific example when you say if you re- you answer back to, let's say, a mother, um, you helped her out, and most people say, you're welcome, but you say it's more powerful to say, I know you would do the same for me, a really smart way of answering back, and I've never had someone answer it this way. They always say, you're welcome. You're welcome or no problem, no problem. Do you use this in your own life or is it a better for specific relationship? I use all the stuff in that book every single day throughout my <laughs> entire life. And that is one thing that I habitually say, I know you do the same for me. I know that what reciprocity does is we're socially inclined to reciprocate. When somebody does something nice to us, we're predisposed to do something nice to them. Mm-hmm. If we set up that reciprocity, then they're more likely to do us a favor in the future. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about favors is interesting. I always ask people to do me a favor. Can you do me a favor and lend me your pen? Can you do me a favor and look at this? And the reason you want to do that is because what happens when we do somebody a favor? How do we feel about ourselves? I feel good. Feel good. And then that goes back to the golden rule of friendship. If we want people to like us, we make them feel good about themselves. Mm. So if you ask people to do you a favor, then they feel good and then they will consequently like you. I guess this all comes down to is treat people like you would want them to treat you. That's pretty cliche, but it's so important to treat other people the way you would want to be treated. And I mean, that's kind of a worn out statement, but nonetheless, it's powerful. And all these mm-hmm. techniques we've been talking about make their day just a little bit 
easier or make your meeting with them beneficial some way, even if it's a small way, make their life just that much better for having met you. Yeah. You say that all of these skills, like the nonverbal signals, that we need to practice them. If not, we'll lose them. Right, because uh, we don't have to teach our kids to be bad, do we? We don't say, Junior, this is how you be bad today. We have to teach them how to be good, and we have to constantly remind them, be good, be good, this is good behavior, this is good behavior. Mm-hmm. So we don't ever have to teach them to be bad. And it's similar to what we're doing here. We're egocentric. We have a tendency to focus on us, and we have to constantly remind ourselves it's not all about us. It's about the other person. Mm-hmm. And once you get in a habit of doing it, like if you do this over and over again, like I've been doing it so long that these things are habitual. I do them just out of habit. Now it becomes a part of you. And then you don't have to practice because it's a part of you. But until then, you have to practice mm-hmm. to fight mm-hmm. off everything's about me. Yeah, that's And nobody's good. interested in me, you know. Because everyone else is interested in them. That's very interesting because as a society, people are anxious and feel lonely and or have low uh, self-confidence. And basically, when you focus on others, they'll be more interested in you. And you know, you know what the irony is? If people like you, they're going to want to do things for you. Not because you ask them to do things, but because they want to do things for you. That's the irony of putting other people first, is that they, in fact, will do things for you because they want to, because they like you. We do things for people we like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. thing you mentioned, because um, for parents, it applies perfectly. Let's say you've met someone, you had a first meeting or, I mean, a play date for parents. You say it's important to get a verbal commitment before leaving. Why, what do we say? What you want to do is you want to get a second meet. And what you want to do is, is make some kind of arrangement for a second meet. Because if you don't, then it's going to be awkward contacting that person again. Because if you say, yeah, I'll call you in a couple days or I'll call you in a week or I'll see you tomorrow at the park or something like that, that person's expecting to see you. And you're not an intrusion in their life then because they're expecting to see you. Nothing worse than somebody popping up in your life and you, you don't there's no expectation of it but if there is an expectation oh yeah the person's here they said they'd be here they're here i'm expecting it and, and mm-hmm. the other thing you want to do on a second meet is to bridge back we call it a bridge back you want to refer to something that you talked about in your first conversation because what that does is that allows you to pick up that rapport building process from where you left off on the first meeting rather than rebuilding it for a second meeting. So like I say, oh, remember we talked about the first time we met, you know, last Tuesday, uh, we talked about this, this, and this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then that gets that rapport building process. It kind of speeds it up a bit. Mm-hmm. How do you know if uh, if someone wants to meet a second time? Is it just by the signals they sent over the that first meeting? Because sometimes I feel like you leave and then you say, oh, let's do this again. And if we're not specific, like let's do this again next Thursday at this time, then it never happens. You go months before actually seeing the person again. But sometimes I don't want to come off as too... Uh, 
uh, excited to meet again. Desperate. Yeah, desperate, desperate that sometimes <laughs> I don't. I just don't say anything and in like it takes weeks or months before oh like we bump into each other. So what's the right way to go about that? Here's here's what you can do is if you make the conversation all about them, they're going to feel good about themselves, the person you meet. Mm-hmm. And the likelihood that they're going to want to meet you again to feel that good feeling again increases significantly. And we can take it like to a dating situation. If I'm dating somebody and I make that person feel very good about themselves, every time they meet me, they feel good about themselves. They're going to want to come back and experience that same good feeling. In fact, they're going to make up excuses to come back to meet with me again. I don't even have to invite them. So I think it's a natural progression if we make other people feel good about themselves. Every time you meet somebody at the park, they said, wow, that was a very good experience. They're going to want to come back and see you. They're going to want to make sure they come back and see you again. Yeah. So it's, 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 again, making people feel good about themselves. Yeah. Because I, I certainly want to be with people that, that I like, and I'm going to find a way to meet people that make me feel good about myself. Yeah, exactly. People that view life in a positive light and don't complain all the time. I mean, that those people that bring positive energy, oftentimes they make you feel better. So you want to see them again. Yeah, there's still room for complaining, but you have to start complaining when you have lots of rapport built, bending rapport when you complain. Mm. You know, you're taking, you're writing a check. Here's a complaint. It's going to cost you so much rapport. And if the rapport is there, then that person will listen to you. But if the rapport isn't there, you're not going to listen to them. So if you come off initially and start complaining to a person you haven't got any rapport with, it's not going to go over well. Because you don't have enough rapport to write that check to buy that complaint, basically. Mm, you got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about sometimes people gossip and say, oh, that that person or that mom, she never, she's always in a bad mood. And let's say I've never met her. What does it do before even meeting the person? Because if I meet her, I'll have this image of her and I'll view her based on what someone else told me. Because often that happens. Like people say, that person is like this, that person is like that before you even meet them. So it influences how you build a relationship with them if you actually do, because you might see them in a specific way. So uh, does it accelerate a friendship if they say, oh, that person is amazing? Oh, yeah. It's it's a very powerful uh, influencer, and it's called primacy. And that is, uh, primacy doesn't change reality. It changes people's perception of reality. So if I tell you, I want you to meet this person, but they're not very trustworthy, be careful. You know, mm-hmm. when you shake their hand, count their fingers, count your fingers and make sure they're all there. <laughs> when in fact, if they're very friendly and nice people and trustworthy, anything they say or do, you're going to view as what? Not trustworthy. Because it's the reality, it's because your perception or the filter through which you see that person. So conversely, if I you meet someone that is very unfriendly and you tell them, oh, he's friendly, he's gregarious, you like that person, they're, they're fun to be with and they treat you in an unfriendly manner, you're going to excuse a lot of unfriendly behavior until you finally figure out this person's not friendly. So what you want to do is recognize 
that when somebody says that person is not friendly and they're antisocial or they don't talk or they don't socialize, you have to you have to recognize that that's a primacy. That is not necessarily reality. So what you want to do is then initiate a conversation with the other person, knowing that you could be influenced by that primacy effect. Mm. So it, there's nothing better than going up to a person and saying, hi, how are you? What's going on? Especially if, if you share the same proximity and frequency and duration, then you can start, you know, exploring. And if you find out yourself that that person is how they were described, then you can make up your own mind. Don't let other people influence because that could hurt somebody. Yeah. And it happens in offices, especially if you transfer around a lot. Because if you go to a new office, you've been transferred and the the people at the office you're going to call the previous office and they happen not like you, the person they talk to, then you're going to have a hard time at your new office because people are going to see you as being not friendly or not a hard worker when in fact you may be. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very careful with that primacy. It, it will hurt. I, you know, it, it, the, the sad thing is if, if it's a friendly person and they just happen to have one bad encounter mm-hmm. and works out and then they're left abandoned because of, of rumors. So you have to kind of overcome that and make your own decision. Yeah. So it's good to, to talk about this because just making people conscious that, yes, someone can have like bad days. And if their bad day is the first time you meet them, I mean, it's not a good day. It's not a good yeah. day. <laughs> you, you can't generalize their their personality or their character, who they are based on one encounter. Yeah, that's why I always give people two or three chances. And then if you meet somebody for three or four times and they're not friendly, then you can make up your own mind and say, you know what? I don't want to be with that person because when I'm with that person, I don't feel good about myself. Mm-hmm. That's basically what we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why does misery love company? Because we feel good when we're with somebody that we have something in common with. We have common ground. We're both miserable. Uh-huh. And, and we're, we're both complaining and miserable together. We feel good about ourselves, don't we? Because we <laughs> have mutual uh, support. Mm-hmm. So happy people don't like to be with sad people. People want to do everything they can to maintain their happiness. Yeah, that's good. Let's talk about friendship and technology. You mentioned it in your book. When you're talking with someone and their phone rings, often that person usually stops the conversation to look at their phone to see who's calling. That's what usually happens most of the time. But sometimes they'll say, okay, sorry, I have to take this. They interrupt our conversation and then they continue after they're done. Um, Tell us what does this do when you're talking with someone um, either you've just met or either a friendship you've had for a while. What should people do? One thing I love that you said is just because your phone rings doesn't mean you need to answer it. And I love, love this. Um, so what does this do? Well, what it does is it if, if you don't answer your phone, then what you're doing is you're putting all your focus on that person. And that makes them, again, feel good about themselves. But, you know, I I have to say there's one exception in in my life, and that is if my wife calls, I answer the phone. And that's just the way it is. Even even if I'm in a meeting, I'll say, that's my wife. She has precedent. I'm answering the phone. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And that's just the way it is. Yeah. But it's good to mention it. Oh, yeah, I always mention, I always say, oh, that's the wife, stand by. 
Mm-hmm. I got to take the call. But um, if it's anybody else, then I don't answer the phone. And, and actually, if you know, have you ever been with somebody where the phone rings and they don't answer it and they keep focused on you? Mm-hmm. That makes you feel good. That makes you feel like that person's really paying attention to me. They're not being distracted. Yes. If it's your wife or husband, then you then you have to take the call. <laughs> yeah, especially for parents. If your kids are in school or if you have a limited time to meet up, um, this has happened many times where they say beforehand, by this time I have to leave, so I have to check my phone just to make sure I'm on time for whatever reason. So that kind of makes you understand, okay, it's not something's wrong with me that she's not interested is she has something planned or scheduled or an appointment or so on. So I think that is always better to mention before you start the conversation. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That Well, that sets up that expectation again, because they're going to say, oh, yeah, they told me they only had a short amount of time. So once you something happens and you expect it, that's normal. The other thing uh, non-verbally you can you can watch out for is if you're talking to somebody and they look at their watch a number of times, that means there's a time constraint there and they don't want to tell you about it, but they're non-verbally telling you. So what you do is say, hey, you know, we'll pick up this conversation later or mm-hmm. next time we meet, we'll talk. And that they won't have to bring up an awkward subject and you won't have to press their time beyond their limits. So there's a lot of things you can do. Yeah, because that's that's one of the main things now with being accessible 24-7, when to take time to just be focused on who you're with. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very important. What about when you want to get rid of unwanted friendships, people that are bringing you down, you don't feel good around them anymore. What can you do to kind of send signs that, okay, that's it. How can you use the friendship formula to do the reverse? Well, you can you can reverse that friendship formula by decreasing mutual gaze and decreasing all the other intensifiers. You can decrease frequency of your visit, decrease the the duration of each of your visits, and then eventually that person is going to get the idea that you know they don't feel comfortable around you anymore, and then proximity is going to go away. So mm-hmm. you can let a person down very gradually by reducing the intensifiers, the frequency, and the duration of your visit. Be a natural process because this, the other person will say, "I'm no longer getting the same satisfaction I got when I was with that person." Therefore they'll tend to drift. So you want to just let people down gently. So where can listeners know more about you? You've written a few books, articles. Where can they read those and learn more about what we've talked today? Well, I have a blog on Psychology Today magazine. It's psychologytoday.com. And the title of my blog is Let Their Words Do the Talking. Mm-hmm. And I have a uh, over a hundred blogs that cover personal relationships and uh, a wide range of topics in the social uh, interaction. I have a Facebook page. Uh, the Facebook page is the like switch. Of course, you know, my book's available on Amazon and Audible and all the other normal outlets for books. And I'll finish with this question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a parent is a roller coaster of emotion and experiences, keeping motherhood inspired. What one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your parenting journey? Hope that they get older and they can leave <laughs> the home and be <laughs> successful and not be in jail. And that's based on your work 
experience, I'm guessing. Yes, I don't want to keep him prisoner in my basement at 30. Well, thank you, Jack, for being here today and talking about all that you know. Okay, you're welcome. I know you do the same for me. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcasts. This will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys.